Well, let's begin today with Matthew chapter 5. The next segment here in this series of messages, we'll read verse 33 to 37. If you're able, I ask you to stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. We do this because this is Holy Scripture. It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 to 37. Here now is the word of the Lord. Again, you've heard that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord your vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need is to say simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Please be seated. We're in the sixth week of this series of messages from the Sermon on the Mount. They'll take us right up to June, other than we'll take a few weeks off as we approach Easter, and then we'll return and complete this. We've covered verses fairly familiar to us, from the Beatitudes through the verses about salt and light, to that Jesus came to fulfill, not replace the law, and then these series of antithesis verses that we're in the middle of. Last week we had one very sensitive issue, and I thank you for your prayers and for your willingness to listen to what I believe Scripture has to say about that. Today we're going to consider verse 33 to 37, see what Jesus says about this matter of taking oaths and vows. Now if we were going to put this in a paraphrase form, in other words, he's really saying, you guys were taught years ago, don't take your oaths falsely. The uh, classic translations say, do not forswear. But he reminds them, be sure you keep your oaths to the Lord. But then he says, but I say to you, don't make oaths, not in heaven because it's the seat of God, or on the earth because it's the resting place for his foot, or in Jerusalem because it's the city of the great king. And then he says, don't take an oath in your mind because you're not able to make one hair white, which implies wisdom, or one hair black, which implies the strength of youth. Instead, let your words be yes or no. Anything more than that only opens the door to trouble. That's really what he's saying. And he's mirroring what James wrote many years later in James 5.12. But most of all, my brothers and sisters, never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else. Just say a simple yes or no so that you will not sin and be condemned. Now the context here, James was writing to, well, in that first century would have been called Jewish Christians, meaning that they were born and raised as Jews. They have come to see that Jesus is the Messiah who was prophesied to come, and they have accepted that. But culturally, and in all their upbringing, they are still Jews. He's not writing to Gentile Christians. And he's quoting almost directly from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But what's this really saying? And more importantly, what is it not saying? Because this is a passage that has a fair amount of confusion. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of examples. There are people who misunderstand the passage and they'll say, okay, you're um, called into court to testify. And they make you take an oath. Is that wrong? You know, they say, do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Only a lawyer could have written that. <laughs> Is that wrong to do that? What about the office of the President of the United States? January 20th, every four years, they place their hand on a Bible, they raise their right hand, and they take the oath of office. They solemnly swear that they will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. 
and will, to the best of their ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. And then it goes on further and further. Does the Bible say a new president shouldn't do that? Is Jesus saying that in a court of law you should not take the oath? So to give us some clarity on this, one of the Bible commentaries I often consult offers the following thoughts about what Jesus is saying. Here's what the commentary wrote. It says, There is no reason to consider that solemn oaths in a court of justice or on other proper occasions are wrong, provided they are taken with due reverence. But all oaths taken without necessity or those in common conversation are unnecessary, as well as saying things that are basically appeals to God in which they think they avoid guilt by pledging to be truthful, even without actually being truthful. The commentary goes on to offer this observation. The worse people are, the less they're bound by their oaths, and the better they are, the less need there is for their oaths. Our Lord does not state the precise conditions we are to affirm or deny, but it asks us to focus on truth in a way that would render these oaths unnecessary. In practical terms, Jesus is saying, these wouldn't even need to exist if you were just always honest. Now, the oaths in his time fell into common use because of the fall into sin. But in God's original creation, there was no deceit, and therefore there was no need for these kinds of things. Now, let's kind of unpack the passage a little bit. Exegesis is the Greek term where you pull the meaning from the passage. We're in the middle of these antithesis statements, and there's two groups of them. Verse 21 to 32 centers on instruction heavily taken from the book of Deuteronomy. And then the second group, verse 33 to 48, is on topics largely from the book of Leviticus. People in the ancient world would often take oaths or make vows, and they would invoke one of the pagan gods. You know, can you imagine they say, may Zeus strike me dead if I don't tell the truth. I remember when I was a kid, some of the neighborhood kids that I used to run around with had a phrase that they would say, I'm telling you the truth. And they said, if I'm not, I'll stick a needle in my eye and hope to die. Do you remember ridiculous statements like that? Or others like, I'll swear on a stack of Bibles. But you see, the Greek word that's translated as oath, it really means a limit or a restraint. To take an oath or to, quote, swear an oath means you're promising to keep that oath. Uh, in verse 34, the classic translations word it by saying, thou shalt not forswear. It would best be translated by saying, thou shalt not perjure yourself. Jesus is warning us, don't take oaths that you know you're not going to be able to keep. And by the way, in verse 34 also, the old translations say, swear not at all. Now, this is not specifically aimed at a ban on foul language. It's aimed at telling us the oaths and vows are unnecessary if people were just being honest. Now, that having been said, I do not want, after the service, in the coffee hour, to hear people saying, hey, Pastor Jim said it's okay to swear. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that this specific passage was not focused on a ban of, shall we say, inappropriately colorful use of adjectives and adverbs. <laughs> I'm just saying that in Jesus' day, the oaths were efforts to try to have God be almost a legal witness to the truthfulness of their claim. There was so common that there was a book called the Jewish Talmud that devoted an entire section to it. And it had all kinds of distinctions about what kinds of oaths were valid and what was not. 
But here in verse 33 and 34, Jesus is really being rather stark with this because oath-taking was so prevalent at that time. He's not revoking all oaths. It's the frivolous oaths on ordinary issues. What he's really saying is, stop it. Don't do that. Now, there's another Bible commentary that I looked at, and it talks about spurious oaths that have no binding power. They're pointless. They're trying to infringe on God's right to be God. They try to force God to support their own ideas. And that's this passage where it says, neither by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem. There were people who would face toward Jerusalem, and they would take an oath, basically trying to tell God what to do because they're taking their oath in the name of the holy city. They're overlooking it's his city, not theirs. The entire passage, quite honestly, is a pretty solid slapdown as Jesus is trying to tell these first century Jews that their lack of truthfulness and their substituting of these meaningless oaths was the problem. But in verse 36, there's an interesting twist, an interesting change of direction. Neither shalt thou swear by the head, is the classic translation wording of it, the person themselves becomes the basis of the oath. Jesus reminds us even this is unacceptable because God has power over them as well. And then that passage about the white hair and meaning the wisdom of old age or the black hair, the strength of youth, it reminds us don't trust in your oath because that can't change where you really are in life. Trust in God. He's literally saying, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be totally honest. And then he concludes, verse 37, anything beyond this, essentially he's saying it's opening the door for Satan to get underneath and cause rust in your life, as I told the kids. Their faith is in the wrong place. They trust in their oath more than they trust in God. That's really what he's, what he's getting at. Now, later in Matthew 23, Jesus criticizes the Jewish leaders because they loved to debate they had these intense debates. Jesus calls them blind guides. He says their arguments are so short-sighted they, figuratively speaking, can't even see beyond the ends of their nose. He's telling us, don't hide behind all these false oaths. They keep you from taking responsibility for what you say. Instead, live the truth of your words. Stand by what you say. Now, there are some 30 references in the Bible to oaths and vows. Most of them are in the Old Testament. The books of Leviticus and Numbers have several references in relation to offerings and sacrifices. That may be one reason why Jesus was so specific with his reminders. And you might say, what's the difference between a vow and an oath? Well, a vow is a specific type of oath, but it's important to understand Jesus is not condemning promises or contracts or agreements. He's saying the kinds of spontaneous vows a person makes when they really haven't thought it through. He's not trying to discourage careful, thought-out promises, like a wedding vow or a legal contractual agreement. He's not trying to discourage that. But the main principle, he's saying, don't make all these unnecessary vows. Let your word be your vow. Now, why is Jesus being so pointed on this issue? Well, very practically speaking, we're unable to know for sure whether or not we can always keep our promises we're prone to errors. We're prone to mistakes in judgment. That's part of our fallen nature. We may 
make promises or vows or take oaths foolishly, sometimes just out of immaturity. Second, we don't know what the future will always bring. Only God does. Finally, Jesus says that our word must be sufficient without making vows, that our yes mean yes and our no mean no. Adding vows or oaths opens us up to the influence of Satan. His desire is to trap us and compromise our Christian testimony. It was true 2,000 years ago, and unfortunately it is still true today. It will be true until he comes again. Now you say, well, what if I've already done some of that? Well, it's like anything else. We should confess it to God knowing that 1 John 1, 9 applies. He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, a little bit of a side issue. People ask about service clubs and fraternal organizations, like the Kiwanis Club, the Rotary Club, the Lions Club, American Legion, VFW, others. They have certain membership oaths. Are they inappropriate for Christians to be a part of? The Lions Club is something a number of us are members of. I think you know that I joined the local Lions Club to get involved, to serve in the community. And when you read the description of Lions, it sounds like a group of honorable people trying to do honorable things to impact their community in honorable ways. But should a Christian be a member of those kinds of organizations or fraternal organizations like the Elks or the Moose Lodge or any of those groups? For the most part, the goals and the activities of those groups are well-intended. If a Christian joins some of those groups, let it be for the purpose of being salt and light within that group of people. Now, over the years, some churches have discouraged things like that, and they've used associational arguments. And you say, what's that? Well, I remember in Gaylord there was somebody, and they were interested in joining the Elks Club. And I remember one other person coming to them, and I overhear this conversation, and I'm kind of snickering to myself, because the conversation is, you want to join the Elks? Don't do that. And the person said, well, why not? And they said, they drink beer there. <laughs> what well, does that mean that somebody who drinks beer is a non-believer? And the person said, well, no, that's not what I'm saying. You see, they were Baptists, right? <laughs> what about all the military veterans who want to join the American Legion? I have a hunch they drink beer there too. If a criteria like that makes an organization off limits, then you better not buy your groceries at the local grocery store or buy your gas at the local gas station. They sell beer there. What's my point with all of this? If we evaluate the appropriateness of an organization purely by an indirect relationship it might have with a personal bugaboo of yours or mine, we have to face there's a reason behind that tension. And I would suggest the reason is being salt and light requires us to know where the line is. Where do we draw the line between letting our light shine versus letting our salt lose its savor or harming our testimony or our witness? It's a question we have to ask ourselves but I do not see Jesus' statement here as being a statement that Christians should not be part of organizations like that. You're just going to have to realize that you may have to say no to certain activities at times. But that's an issue of your liberty in Christ. It is between yourself and God. So that's the way that I look at that. So let's wrap this up. Here in this passage, Jesus is giving us another one of these antithesis statements, and he's basically saying, 
You people keep making all these oaths and vows. You even try to do it in God's name or in the name of the holy city or even based on your own thoughts. But I'm saying to you, let your reputation be so reliable that these kinds of oaths and vows are unnecessary. And besides, relying on your personal vows are unwise because it potentially opens the door for Satan to lead you and others astray. He's basically reminding them, put your trust in God and not in your pledges and in your vows. So the question for you and I today, every bit as much for me too, by the way, is where do we see things in our own lives where we have some of this habit? Might even be just in phrases that we use. We're in a parting conversation. Someone says, will you do this? And what do we tend to say? Yes, I'll take care of it. I promise. If your reputation is that you will take care of it, stop right there. Just take care of it. I think that's what Jesus is getting at. Your word alone is your promise. I think we get tied up in our habits. We forget the meaning behind them. Churches do that. They get tied up in their traditions. And even when the intentions have been very honorable, Satan has a way of getting underneath the protective coating. And in our spiritual walk, we rust. And when we see that rust, we need to scrape it out of there and retreat it so that it doesn't grow, because rust grows. Any of us who have driven cars for years north of the Ohio River know that rust grows. <laughs> And you need to stay on top of it to prevent it from growing. Sin is that way. And Satan is a master of using it, even in things that are really well intended. So here's the bottom line. Is your word such that people will take you at your word? Is your reputation such that people will trust you even when they disagree with you about something? I would say be salt and light. Get involved. Don't put your light under a bushel, but don't do something that makes your Christian convictions be compromised. And as I often end my messages, there's just one more thing, and that is that the solution to the mystery of where you draw the line on these matters is to have faith that the Holy Spirit will guide you. Because God may be calling many of us, including First Union Church, to go to people in be, and to be involved in some ways that are outside of this little box that you might have lived in for years. And I'm going to draw a final analogy here. The, the box that we live in, it may have been originally set up as a way to protect you. In that sense, it might be kind of a bunker. But if you don't eventually, by faith, learn to come out of that and take some steps forward, it becomes a pit. And it becomes your own jail cell. And you try to get others to come down and live there with you. And now they're trapped too. All it does is keep you from doing what God may be calling you and I to do. So may the Holy Spirit help you to trust him and to give you clear understanding as to how he wants you to proceed with the plans he has for your life and the plans for First Union Church. And as you follow him along that path, may your word itself mean something, not a grandiose oath or vow you might make instead. And just because Jesus isn't giving a specific ban on, shall we say, inappropriately colorful metaphors, your Christian testimony means something too. There is no reason to use words that don't glorify God. And when we do, and we slip up, and in our frustration we say something that we shouldn't have, confess it to him, for he is faithful and just to forgive us. 
With all that in mind, let's pray.